Welcome back to another episode of Creedle. My guest today is someone who's been on the show a couple times before, wants to talk about Quentin Tarantino, and another time to talk about Familiaris Consortium. Did, did I miss one or was that it? I think no, just, I think that's been yeah, it. Yeah, two appearances. So this is the third. Third time is the charm. Uh, happy to have you back. My guest is Father Jim Barron, my pastor at Holy Apostles Catholic Church in Colorado Springs. Father Jim's been the pastor there for almost six years. It, yep, six yeah. this summer. Six this summer. Uh, and uh, he got his STL in Rome uh, in in basically studying the theology of the the family at the you have to give me the full title, the St. John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family Life Studies. There it is. Perfect. Which is why, of course, you came on to talk about Familiaris Consortium. You're mm -hmm. a, one of the one of the experts on the topic. We'll say, <laughs> at least in this room. <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. Of the two of us, you're definitely the more learned on uh, <laughs> on the theology of the family. Um, well, speaking of the family, Father, I wanted to have you on because this past summer, back in June, I think you wrote it in May. It was published in June, on June 1st. If you go to the show notes of this podcast episode, you can see the link there. But you wrote on spiritual fatherhood and Eucharistic coherence. Um, now, the backdrop to this article was uh, all of the discussion leading up to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops taking up the topic of Eucharistic coherence at their annual meeting. And it ended up not quite being exactly in the way I think that it was, it was portrayed. They weren't making a, uh, they weren't deciding on who can and cannot receive the Eucharist, but they were really just making decisions about um, sort of how do we catechize around the Eucharist and how do we shape our Eucharistic discipline. Um, but you wrote this article about how Eucharistic coherence is really best understood through a lens of the family. Mm -hmm. um, and as the bishops make decisions on Eucharistic coherence, uh, it is best to understand their role in that process as one of spiritual fatherhood. So we'll get into all that and uh, and sort of analyze and break down your your main thesis in this article. But it might be helpful uh, to talk a bit about Eucharistic coherence and what it is and why it matters. Because Eucharistic coherence often gets equated to Eucharistic discipline, right? When do we receive the Eucharist? When should we receive the Eucharist? Who gets to receive the Eucharist? But Eucharistic coherence is, is also more than that. It does include Eucharistic discipline, but it's also more than that. So what is Eucharistic coherence? I think it's in some ways an unfortunate term, but we haven't really found anything better. We use it uh, to try to, I think, grasp what it means for the Eucharist as not just, I mean, as a sacrament, it is a visible sign of an invisible reality that communicates the grace it signifies. But I think also what it, represents as far as participating in it what it implies in many ways and how it does imply certain behaviors uh, professions of belief and how you live that if you're going to receive the eucharist and if you're going to live coherently with what the sacrament is i know it's a kind of a mouthful and it's not really a, a, a much clearer way of defining it but i do believe eucharistic coherence is a term that just sort of carries a lot of implication that if we are going to say that the Eucharist is what it is, what we truly believe it to be as Catholics, then that means that it calls on us to profess our faith and to live in a particular coherent way. If, they're going, if there's going to be integrity and consistency with our Eucharistic practice and participation in that, receiving the Eucharist. It makes sense. While you were speaking, I just looked up the definition of coherence. I always think of coherence as um, being a property uh, that binds something together, mm -hmm. right? That makes everything hold together. The two definitions that come up here are the quality of being logical and consistent 
or the quality of forming a unified whole. I think that gets more to sort of what, how I think of coherence normally with, mm-hmm. with this topic at least. Um, but I think you're right. And I like the way you said it, it, it revolves around how we live our belief in the Eucharist. So it isn't simply a question of what the Eucharist is, although that is the foundational question. It's not simply what do we believe that it is or what it is. It's also the question of how does that inform our lives? Uh, and that of course involves Eucharistic discipline. But, you know, and, and part of that discipline is how do we approach the Eucharist? Um, how do we as Catholics approach the Eucharist when we receive it? And then what does the Eucharist say for the rest of the world? Or what is, you know, what can we say about the Eucharist? And what, what, about, the, um, what, what about the nature of God or the incarnation does the Eucharist imply for us? Um, so I think all of that falls under the umbrella of Eucharistic coherence. And it's important to think about that in a more unified whole because it really does transcend the idea of Eucharistic discipline. This was such a big issue at the beginning of this year because there was the rumor that the USCCB was going to take up the issue of Eucharistic discipline specifically at their annual meeting um, when really they were they were taking up the issue of Eucharistic coherence, but a really kind of a small subset about that uh, of that, which is Eucharistic education, like we talked about. Um, and so the the question, and maybe I'll sort of you know provocatively title this podcast like should show, should Joe Biden receive communion? <laughs> um, <laughs> clickbait. But yeah, exactly. So clickbaity. Uh, but that was that was really what a lot of people were talking about. Mm-hmm which is a narrow subset of the broader question of Eucharistic coherence. It's an important one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I want to be clear that you should be not in a state of mortal sin to mm-hmm. receive the Eucharist and you should be uh, giving assent to all that the Catholic church uh, holds and believes that would exclude a number of prominent people who do not do that uh, to include the president of the United States. Um, but this is not exactly what we're talking about today. So I won't actually give the podcast that, that clickbaity title, <laughs> but so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about some of our beliefs about the Eucharist because, uh, actions follow beliefs. Uh, I pulled up in front of me here, some numbers from a Pew survey a couple of years ago. I know you've seen this, especially as a pastor. Mm-hmm. This is a major challenge. I imagine for uh, any person who has pastoral responsibility, but the headline here is just one third of us Catholics agree with their church. The Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. And the numbers are even more dire than that. So it's really less than one third. It's 31% of Catholics believe the church's teaching about transubstantiation. 69% believe that the bread and wine are mere symbols. Breaking down that that 69% more deeply, 43%, so this is 43% of the whole, uh, so, so the subset of 69%, but 43% of the whole think that the Catholic Church actually teaches that bread and wine are symbols. So a major failure of catechesis right there. Mm-hmm. 22% of the whole know the church teaching, but still reject it and believe that the bread and wine are symbols. Are, are symbols. And then 4% are religious unsure. Um, so maybe we can stay on this topic just a little bit. I want, I, I, we will get to your article and I want to get to your article, but as a pastor, you hear these numbers, I'm sure in 20, in 2019, you were at Holy Apostles when this study came out. I'm sure it wasn't surprising to you because you've been in a pastoral setting and this is just confirming what you've probably been dealing with as a pastor. But what are your, what are some of your like high level takeaways from this, that, uh, a majority, a large majority of self-identifying Catholics in the U S do not believe that the bread and wine are the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I think it's evidence of a lack of Eucharistic coherence from a different angle. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the result of a lack of that, practically speaking. You know, you look at 
how the mass is celebrated, for example, let alone the catechesis that's verbalized. And I know, unfortunately, some priests, catechists will say this is just a symbol. Um, you know, that's, that's the case in many places. But I firmly believe that nonverbal communication is almost as important, if not more powerful than verbal. And so how the Eucharist is treated, how communion is done, that communicates something to people. And if it doesn't look like this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, treated that way on the altar at Mass, received in communion, then, of course, you know, that would suggest that we don't really mean what we say. And so that lack of practical coherence, I think, has something to do with those numbers. That uh, absolutely makes sense. I like your point about how what we do can be more powerful than what we say. Um, a friend of mine went to Harvard for grad school, and he would attend, I think it's called St. Paul's in Harvard Square. It's, a, it's the Catholic church in Harvard Square. And he said one of the priests there at St. Paul's while he was studying was uh, was so reverent in speaking the name of Jesus that he would bow his head every time he did it, even in normal conversation. Mm -hmm. And the uh, the in the germ, the general instructions for the Roman Missal, in Mass, we're supposed to bow our head at the name of Jesus, but there's no obligation to do so outside of Mass. Mm -hmm. But to this priest, it was so important that he would bow his head even in normal conversation. And I think that story is really powerful because it's one thing to um, to profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Uh, it's another thing entirely to do that while also showing with your body that you are are, are submitting to him in all things. And so you're right. I think the nonverbal can be so much more powerful. Well, isn't that the whole story of the martyrs? They witness by the shedding of their blood. Yeah. Even you know more powerful than the profession of their lips. Yeah. It's not that it's not just that they wrote books, it's that they lived their lived it's, the truth. Exactly. So from a pastoral perspective, again, taking this into a parish context, uh, obviously the best way that you can show things is through the liturgy because that's when you have everyone there. Um, so how do you think about the liturgy and how to communicate these truths through liturgical acts? Well, I try to think about the liturgy in the same way the church does. And in the catechism, National Directory for Catechesis, it speaks about the liturgy as catechetical, but it doesn't imply that in the way of a teaching mass. For example, I kind of detest that. It's sort of redundant, a teaching mass. No, the mass is going to instruct. By that, do you mean like, uh, like a, almost like a guided mass, like exactly. explaining everything we're going to do? Exactly. Yeah. And now, if that's going to happen and it's not actually the mass, okay, that may be a catechetical gimmick that you can use for a class, RCIA. RCIA yeah. But generally, when people try to do that throughout the Mass, it just it rubs me the wrong way because I think it is redundant. Whereas if you celebrate the Mass with, you know, it's not just a matter of uh, saying the black, doing the red. As you know, I was just thinking about that phrase you were talking. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of leeway for interpretation. How do you precisely do those things? Yeah. What does the red exactly mean? Uh, and I think this is actually an important consideration in the the back and forth between the extraordinary form and the ordinary form, because in the extraordinary form, a lot of those actions were prescribed mm -hmm. very clearly, and there wasn't a lot of room for the priest's personal sort of flair. And you know, and I'm not trying to establish that that is the the preferred norm, but I think we have to consider that as a reality and how the what's called the ars celebrandi, the art of celebrating the mass, really does matter. Um, how the little gestures themselves matter. Um, I'm actually working on another article and it's hard as a pastor to actually get something produced, sure. but I really want to dive into the idea of Jesus as in the, uh, the Second Vatican Council document, Dave Verbum says, he revealed 
through words and gestures, you know, gestis verbisque. And, you know, it get back to the catechism, it describes how through Jesus's even manners, he manifested something of the Father. And, and that's, I think, an important thing where we don't discount the small things, the gestures, the postures, the words. Um, we try to rather capitalize on them as instructive. And so, you know, you know, trying to, again, think about that with the mind of the church. And it's also just a very practical uh, human reality. I can talk to somebody and have a very serious conversation, you know, perhaps in, in a Chuck E. Cheese versus in a, you know, in, in the confessional. Mm-hmm. And depending on the nature of the conversation, the setting really does have an important impact. And so, you know, the, the nonverbal elements are going to be, um, I, I really try to consider those as much as possible. Now, in liturgy, you know, there's also certain rigid, rigidity and a robotic way of doing things that I think also communicates poorly. So it's, I think that's why they call it the Ars Celebrani, the art of celebrating, mm-hmm. not the science of celebrating. Right. Because it does have to be a natural thing, but naturally reverent. And it has to be contextualized in different cultures as well. Uh, and I don't mean that in a certain in a Pachamama sort of way. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but what I mean is, uh, if you look at, um, if you look, I mean, even, even quite simply compare any of the Eastern churches to the Latin rite, and you'll see very different traditions of sacred art, different traditions of, of chant and, um, and, and even obviously different liturgies. Uh, and that, that is a, a good thing, but but all of those things are supposed to communicate the seriousness of intention uh, and the substance of what is of what we're celebrating, of what we're what we're proclaiming. Um, yeah, when you were talking about um, the sort of the various ways to think about it, I, I think the art of celebrating is a good one. Our our celebrande. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think the environment of the place is really helpful, and I'm thinking especially now of the. Uh, the new stations of the cross that our parish procured earlier this year, as we were leaving, our, our kids love them. As we were leaving mass the other day, Leo, my son, just got caught up in looking at one of them, hmm. and we were walking out the door. But he was taking time to to, to say, like, who's who's that man? What's happening? Not he was he knows who Jesus is. <laughs> well, he wasn't asking about that, <laughs> but it was it was one of the men who was uh, who was hammering the nails into the hands of Jesus. Um, and so he was just really caught up in the imagery of the whole thing. And so we. We we stood there and let him let him take it in, but but even just having a beautiful environment. So there's sort of an an, uh, an ambiance question or an environmental question. In addition to the what are what are we doing with our bodies, the mm-hmm. the sort of personal declaration question um, that I think is really important to think about. And when I look at, I'm about to about to criticize some architects here, and I know you have a background in architecture, so would would love your take but when i look at a lot of the churches that were that continue to be built today um but especially that were built starting around 1970 1980 uh they're just super ugly Mm -hmm. uh they proclaim nothing different from like the dmv down the street right Mm -hmm. um and so it's no wonder to me that children who are raised in those environments grow up thinking this is no different than anything else that i've ever seen this is a symbol only right no, I think you're absolutely right. And that's a human instinct. I mean, people have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in research projects to figure out things like a vaulted ceiling encourages people to soften their voices. You know, banks do that. It kind of impacts behavior. Um, people understand that our behavior and our environment interact with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a lot of this minimalist architecture or a community-focused architecture 
is itself trying to emphasize and promote a way of behaving. It's become so focused away from the centrality of the Eucharist in these Catholic churches. Whereas, you know, the traditional development of architecture developed from a, a particular theology and yes, also from a historical context, the Roman Basilica, mm-hmm. for example, but it lent itself to what the church was trying to accomplish. Um, but with the whole kind of confluence of these different factors, I think that's that's really an important reality. It's a Catholic reality. We're a both and, not an either or. Mm-hmm. And in the West, especially even in the Catholic Church, we tend to have imbibed this iconoclasm, sort of a Protestant reductionism of all you need is X, this, mm-hmm. whatever it is. All you need is faith. All you need is grace. All you need is you know, a place to meet. All you need is, and, and for Catholics, no, it's how do we incorporate this wonderful sort of tapestry as complex as it is? For the whole to experience mm-hmm. it as a whole and i think that's the liturgy itself the architecture the music the ars celebrandi the you know the particular coming together of all of the things kind of creates almost something organic and living mm-hmm. and that's that's the beauty the the glory of our faith i believe whereas if we try to reduce it and you'll you'll hear people say well-intentioned people that i'm sure have a love of the lord in their own way say well we don't need a beautiful church well you don't need it but it's in some ways really important you know like art is important even though you don't need it um you know a a car is important even though you don't absolutely need Mm -hmm. it right so you know and of course there are varying degrees of that but i think we have to be aware of this whole reductive tendency to try to say this is you know if we can have kind of a stripped down architecture or a very plain basic liturgy then that's going to be enough um, and there's a lot more to say, and I don't want to rabbit hole, but I think that, you know, that, that coming together of a number of these factors matters. It impacts you. And it's really, if one of them is missing, then you do have in a certain way, an impoverished experience of what the liturgy is meant to be. Yeah, I completely agree. And I have a couple of reactions to that. I mean, one is in reaction to this, um, or in response to this sort of essentialism that you don't need this, you don't need that. Uh, that is, I think technically true, right? Jesus does not require a beautiful, Um, piece of art to work in the human heart Uh, but jesus can certainly use beautiful works of art to work in the human heart Um, or the criticism of you know why is the church spending so much money on this church when it could just rent out an amazon warehouse and still do its thing there well yes it certainly could and jesus's power is not limited only to beautiful churches Um, and jesus you know the the eucharist could be validly convected in a amazon warehouse but um but but we also again putting our money where our mouth is uh, or where our actions are we should we should build beautiful things for god because god is deserving of beautiful things and i think of the uh woman i was i was while you were speaking i was looking up these references to make sure i get them correct but the uh, woman who anoints jesus's feet with oil with very expensive perfume um matthew chapter 26 this account uh is is in also Ma- uh, mark chapter 14 and then luke chapter 7 and then the interesting thing is, of course, in Mark chapter 14, um, some of those who are around, then you can imagine maybe Judas are saying like, why, why are we wasting perfume this way? Mm-hmm. We, what we could do is take this perfume um, and give it to the poor. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Um, and so Jesus uh, encourages her in this act of using expensive perfume um, for the incarnate son of God. That's right. Well, it's, it's a reflection of God's own lavish love for us. He could have saved us in another way than the crucifixion, than shedding every drop of his blood, mm-hmm. but he did. And that shows the lavishness, the extravagance of God's love. And so 
with the effusiveness of the church's art and the beauty of the liturgy, it you know certainly it can become self-referential mm-hmm. and um, decadent, but rightly done again, kept in line. And the church has offered correctives throughout the years. You know, when Palestrina and then eventually some other great composers were developing these very elaborate mass settings, the church said, "Hold on." You know, Gregorian chant is the normative, mm-hmm. the pipe organ is mm-hmm. is the standard, and you know, let's rightly orient these things to what they're for. And so she has offered a corrective in the other way, yeah. too. Um, but with all of these things, it is a manifestation of kind of the, the magnificence, the extravagance of God's love for us. Um, as you were citing that scripture quote, I was thinking of another one that Chesterton mentions as uh, on Palm Sunday, as Jesus is triumphantly entering Jerusalem and the Pharisees say, you know, tell your disciples to be quiet as they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And he says, if they're quiet, the very stones yes. will cry out. Yeah. And then he translates that to the the cathedrals, the Gothic uh, spires and everything that were developed in Christianity, crying out that God is, is here and the Messiah has come. Um, and I think that's, that's, appropriate our churches need to proclaim something extraordinary yeah there's really something to that i'm thinking back to i don't know 20 2011 i think i was traveling uh, around northern france a little bit and the incredible thing about traveling in northern france or really almost anywhere in europe is you see the landscape dotted by these not cathedrals but giant churches mm-hmm. um and you know these are small towns and the churches are hundreds of years old and they were they were built long before electricity and they were built you know when um they were built by craftsmen often traveling craftsmen and stuff but this stuff mattered and you can see that it once mattered to that culture and so it's 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 especially sad but also poignant to travel somewhere and see in france for example wow look at all these beautiful churches dotting the landscape this at one point really meant something to these people and this is an expression of how much how much it meant to them and then to think that we've lost that is really is really something sad. Yeah, it shows that the art and architecture isn't enough to sustain faith, but it is a manifestation of the faith, to think of it more as a fruit rather than the tree. Well, just returning quickly to your point about reductionism, I have a friend who is a Protestant Christian, and when he knew that I was looking into Catholicism and thinking about becoming Catholic, we were talking about the church's Eucharistic beliefs, and he said, in my, in my opinion, it doesn't really matter what it is, uh, what it is before it's consecrated you could do it with you know crack like ritz crackers and pepsi if you wanted to and it would still be something i mean he's he he he, uh adheres to a symbolic view but the consecration still matters to him and but to him it really is just like as long as you're eating something together right then that's what jesus wants us to be doing and so um so i think obviously that's not our position but it does speak to this essentialism the church pushes back strongly against because it isn't just about that there's about a whole lot more to it the, the idea of eucharistic coherence is so much more encompassing than simply having a meal together of ritz crackers and pepsi or some some solid and some liquid right so there's more to it than that so maybe let's pivot to your article now on the eucharistic coherence um and this is maybe not a perfect transition, but I, I would love to hear you kind of summarize the thesis of the article because I, I think it was a good take on Eucharistic coherence and discipline that uh, that contains some some nuggets that were important for the discourse that people were missing when they just reduced it to should this person receive or should this person receive. Sure, sure. Well, I think it actually is a good transition because it, that reductive approach seems to suggest that the thing is what I want it to be. Whereas if you have something that has to tie in given material, 
you have to respect the givenness of these other things to respect the nature of what they are. Mm -hmm. And so I think with the idea of how I approached the conversation on Eucharistic coherence in that article is more like the father of a family rather than the CEO of an of a corporation. It's a it's a failure in the modern church to have gained so many bureaucratic structures and I call it the primacy of middle management. Yeah. And it's and pretty just, good. Well, you know, you you ask the question how many of these guys in charge and I mean I don't mean to sound disrespectful but priests, bishops could they pass muster in any secular corporation? You know, I know some people thrived in the ranks of the church because it's sort of a limited talent pool mm -hmm. um, and they're very good at middle management and bureaucratic uh, ladder climbing yeah. and that's i mean that's an embarrassing reality but i think we're facing the consequences of the failures of that middle management class of leadership that's you know found its way so often into the hierarchy of the church and that becomes the lens through which so many of our pastors approach this question of eucharistic coherence well, we don't want to sound political. We don't want to get too heavy on this side. We need to balance it out on that side. And, and again, we it's need to think about growth. Yeah, it's <laughs> a management technique. Yeah. Versus the idea of a father is, uh, you know, the father of a family has these lives that are entrusted to his and his wife's care. But these are also lives who are going to make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. He has to help form them to be able to make the responsible decisions which includes support, encouragement, but also, you know, consequences incumbent on certain actions. And that is part of the coherent task of, a, of being a parent is to raise these children and to keep the whole family kind of together as much as possible around a certain collected ideal and moving in this common direction as a family. And so to, to kind of regain a sense of spiritual fatherhood, which is, you know, that's the language we use. It's one of the great titles I love being called father, father, Jim, yeah. um, you know, that, that really holds true with the tasks that I have in common with you. I mean, there are certain things that we have very different in common or that we don't have in common. They're very different in our senses of fatherhood. But I think what we have, what we share is, is much more weighty and, and foundational. And, and so much of that is the, the real solicitude, the concern that we have for the well-being of our family and that burden of responsibility for that well-being and to try to guide it together in that holistic sense. So how does viewing the topic of Eucharistic coherence through the lens of spiritual fatherhood, how does that change the question or, or maybe not the question, maybe it changes the answer or maybe it simply changes the lens through which we look at the question and the answer? Sure. Well, you know, father's especially as their kids get into their teenage years where they ex exercise their own innate wills. Um, I don't think my kids ever will. I think, no, uh, yeah. no, they're going to be perfect <laughs> yeah. just like dad. Um, yeah, a father has to also represent a certain stability. I think dads should be boring, meaning you kind of know what they're about. You know what they're going to say about something. And they're always that place you can come home to. And that's where I use that image of the prodigal son and the father from the scriptures that the prodigal son went off and did what he did and in greatly insulted his father. And the moral of the story isn't that the father sold the house, forsook all of his house tenants just to go be with his son. It wasn't, that wasn't the whole point of the story. I mean, the point is really God's extravagant love for us, his right. deep desire to show mercy to us. But implicit in that is the fact that the father stayed put. The house didn't go anywhere. He had those other lives that he was responsible for. But then also the fact that that prodigal son had a place to come home to. Yeah. 
And that's, that's an important image of fatherhood is that stability. Um, you know, we, we have, unfortunately, again, in this middle management mentality, people who kind of thrive in the confusion and the ambiguity of things. And that's, that's politically powerful. Um, you know, you can have people on both sides of an argument thinking that you're on their side if you maintain ambiguity mm -hmm. and therefore you've doubled your constituency. But, you know, sometimes kids say, and every teenager has probably said it, dad, I hate you because you don't yeah. let me do this thing that I want to do. Or, yeah. you know, like you're not doing what I want. Um, that's a risk that you take as a dad is to sort of be seen in your stability as perhaps an opposition to what somebody wants. I liked what you said a few minutes ago about how the father and mother, but we're talking about spiritual fatherhood um, and applying it to the leaders of the church, the bishops today. Um, the role of the parent is to keep the family together, but not simply put them all in the same room and not let them leave, right? It's not just together like for, for the sake of being together, but it's it's being together around a shared ideal um, because that's where true unity comes in. You can force You can force a bunch of dinner guests to sit around a table, but that doesn't, make unity among those dinner guests, right? Uh, and so I like that idea as well. So how does that apply to this question? Sure, sure. You have to, the, the responsibility of a parent is to raise future adults. Uh, you know, they want their kids to be able to go out and live their own lives. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a priest, as a, a pastor, we have to raise disciples who are able to make disciples. You know, that's that's our spiritual fatherhood and you know of course we we really only have so much oversight and insight into somebody's life and we can um, you know say all for our own part how much we believe in the true presence of the Eucharist to, to come back to our current conversation topic but at the end of the day if it's not about their conversion and their coming to faith then you know effectively we're we're sort of running uh, running the race in vain yeah and you know so trying to help equip them and reach out and, and cooperate with god's grace he's doing the heavy lifting but that creation of faith-filled disciples or trying to promote that through our own prayers through our own teachings and examples um but you know and how do we manage to keep that community of the parish you know that a pastor is the pastor of a parish or in the case of a bishop of a diocese um, how do you kind of keep that family together in its sense of commitment to one another right. along this missionary journey if you will yeah when i think about that and i could be wrong but i saw an early draft of this piece that you wrote for first things and i think you might have had something in there about you know un unity without shared belief is not unity at all i, I could be wrong um, but I think that idea is intriguing to me, especially in light of your comments about sort of middle management, because the middle manager is obsessed with stability, um, but not necessarily in a good way, right? So your example about the, the good father or the spiritual father being about stability is a different kind of stability than the middle manager is after, right? Uh, the middle manager is after not wanting to rock the boat. Um, and I think that's what drives a lot of the sort of um, hesitance on the part of our um, prelates in the U.S. Um, and around the world, I'm sure, but they don't want to rock the boat, right? They have a comfortable relationship with their state government, their city mayor, whatever it is. They get to go to the, you know, the the Met Gala and hobnob with a bunch of celebrities, and they sort of convince themselves that they can do so while sharing the gospel. And that might be partially true. Um, and so I don't I don't want to say that like you know a bishop has no place hobnobbing with with a mayor. Or you know, a politician. I think that bishops need to be speaking truth to those people. Um, but I think oftentimes they just get sort of they get afraid of 
upsetting what is happening now. And they think that if they do that, they think that if they do that, then, then this Pew survey and others like it will be even worse, hmm. that more people will leave the church in droves, that they'll just upset folks and drive them away from mass rather than attract them to mass. Um, and I just, I just don't think that's true. Um, I saw, a, a, I will not name the bishop, but I saw a bishop um, filming a video about returning to mass after the COVID-19 pandemic restrictions were lifted. And he did it in a rather dramatic fashion. He went to the doors of his cathedral and he was saying like, look, and I welcome you to return to mass. So let's return together. And he opened the door and, and walked on through. And I, I, I'm not naming him because I'm not even criticizing that specific video, but I think it's an example of how the bishops are really, really primarily with primarily concerned with, um, with getting people to stay in the church. A lot of bishops were afraid when their attendance numbers plummeted that they would stay down. And in many, in many cases, maybe even all, I think they have. Attendance at mass is down. I've seen it at, at our parish, although really not that much. I think like our parish is probably more full than a lot of other parishes that I've visited in in COVID times. But I think that's pretty true across the board. And it's I think I, I would venture to guess, I don't have I don't have empirical data to back this up. I'd venture to guess that it's especially true in dioceses in which the leaders of the of the diocese have not been walking the walk, have not been serious about um, about the job that they have as spiritual fathers. Yeah, you know, with the the real challenge that the epidemic threw, and it laid bare a lot of our our own deficiencies, is it 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 tended to seem to be the point of it all. You know, the the point of our lives now is to stay safe, is to navigate this, and and really the point is always always must be worship of God and living that radical life of following Christ, and if we have to do certain things along the way to make that possible. Okay, so be it. But that's not the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to to kind of get the the main thing back and focus as the main thing. And so the impression I get from a lot of these leaders is exactly that they have a, a complete misaligned priority of what is most important. And it gets to this point Eucharistic coherence in the sense that um, yeah, I, I really believe that clarity is charity. I mean, people know, they should know what oh, we're about. that's good. I've heard that before. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, you know, they have to know what we're about. And by being very clear with who we are and what we're about, we can at the same time reach out in authentic love without kind of putting on airs. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes we'll, we'll try to pretend like we agree with everybody on something and that's what it means to love them. And that's part of the, the sickness of our society is that we think we can only love people that we get along with or that talk like us or that think like us or that look like us. And, you know, the, the whole story of the, the drama of salvation is God loves us in our imperfections mm-hmm. into perfection. Right. And so if we are clearly about the gospel and serving God, living our Christian lives, that includes being able to love those who at face value, you might think they're totally unlovable or that why is this you know, devout Catholic also in the same room talking in a very you know, sincere, friendly way with this other person who you know, might be you know, a godless heathen. Yeah. Yeah, there's right. a great story of uh, Benedict Grishel. It's probably apocryphal. I don't know if it actually happened, but he got on an airplane and sat next to this gentleman who you know, had piercings all over and spike leather jacket and tattoos and just, you know, it was other, a potentially awkward yeah. couple hour plane ride. And after takeoff, Father Grishel just, you know, old man, beard, his gray habit looks over and says, here's the way I see it. You and I are the two biggest freaks on this plane. <laughs> 
and that just broke the ice and you know he just like he's not going to change who he is but who yeah. he is is able to reach out to somebody yeah. in that otherness and so you know with yeah trying to talk like look like think like the world that's that's not charitable Right. Yeah, that's not pastoral because one, we sacrifice in some ways who we are, mm-hmm. but it also, I think, impoverishes and weakens the reality of the radicalness of love, the love of God. It kind of makes it seem like, okay, we'll love you if we can, you know, kind of pretend that each other are lovable. No, you might be detestable, but I can still find some way to love you because of who I am, because right. of Christ's love for me. <clears throat> no, I like that. I, I have maybe sort of to end this, um, to end this discussion on Eucharistic coherence, I have, um, a couple of questions and they're, they're both pretty tough, but I'm going to try to combine them here and would love to ha- have your response. Um, the first question is about what opportunities do, do wayward children, spiritually speaking, present for those who are trying to remain faithful. Right. And so if, if we're talking about those who are, who wander off like the prodigal son, there are those who remain with the father, right? And uh, and we can we can become bitter when they come back and are welcomed with open arms, just like the son who remained in the prodigal son parable uh, was as well. So um, you talk about this a little bit in the article. I'm going to read a few a couple a couple paragraphs here. You're talking about um, family situations in which one child, due to any any number of things, behavioral issues, maturity, um, addiction, physical mental illness, they require special attention, and you say family dynamics shift in this or in this situation. But then you say such issues have the potential to call forth incredible virtue from the rest of the family. Children and parents grow in respect for the value of human life, discover meaning in suffering, develop patience with the limitations of others, and overlook superficial barriers between people. The heroism of families with children who have a physical or mental disability is a good example. Healthy self-sacrifice and goodwill enrich their communion. When a child's problems are rooted in his own voluntary behaviors, the effect on the family is often especially harmful. Left unchecked, the other children in the family also suffer the negative consequences of this wrongdoer's behavior. Many times, the legitimate needs of the other children are neglected. Blaming the problem child is an obvious and understandable reflex. After all, the child's behavior has ruptured the communion of the family. But parents are the ones most culpable when these disruptions overtake the home. Parents are responsible for setting the family agenda. It is their role to offer encouragement, correction, and exhortation. When parents fail to establish and enforce the boundaries and expectations of family life, they end up intensifying the harm caused by their child's behavior. Very often, codependent or enabling behavior develops from a false sense of compassion or misplaced guilt. So you're obviously talking about families there, biological families, um, uh, or I'm not, not necessarily, by, I mean, adoptive uh families also would count but but uh what am i looking for like real families not spiritual families you know like yeah biological yeah. uh domestic domestic thank you there yeah. that's a better example you're talking about domestic families but mm-hmm. obviously you then go on to apply this analogy to to spiritual fatherhood mm-hmm. um and talk about the, the role of spiritual leaders in the church so the two things that i have the two questions i have from this one what opportunities are there for the faithful ones to not be damaged by that, right? How can the faithful ones grow in holiness when they see the unfaithful ones not being reprimanded appropriately, not being brought back into the fold, or not even not not even being treated as if they are really outside the fold, right? And so it's a danger to their souls, but I think it can also be a danger to the to the faithful ones because then they think, well, maybe it's not important that I that I live like this, right? If if they can be totally in the fold and they are living like that and doing those things, maybe I don't have to either. 
And then the second question is, and this is maybe the biggest one, and this is the one that is most directly related to the Eucharistic discipline question, um, uh, you know, surrounding politicians, for example, um, having communion. What to do with those problem children, right? Um, what what does it actually practically look like for a bishop to exercise his spiritual fatherhood in a corrective and yet restorative way? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think the first question, you know, as as to go to use the domestic family uh, image, as children with codependent parents grow up and mature, you know, the, the, the siblings, the ones who aren't necessarily the, um, the, the cause of those issues, what they eventually, if they go to therapy, oftentimes they have to, or find support groups to come to a realization that their parents were codependent. Mm. And that's a sort of a clara- clarification, if you will, that, you know, again, boundaries or clarity is charity, that they have to come to that understanding and reflect on how that's impacted them and what is the healthy response. So, you know, when, when the sibling who has been kind of a victim, if you will, of the parents' negligence through their codependency towards those other children, uh, it's a sign of maturity to come to be able to recognize that. And I think there's, this is a sign of maturity in the, co- in the do- conversation in the church right now is there are fewer and fewer people pretending, oh, everything's fine, or trying to offer a shallow apologetic for yeah. the failure of certain pastors. And, and they're not being sort of bitter. I mean, some people are, but generally I think there's a real objective, like, no, this isn't right. Right. We should, we should be seeing something different than what we currently are. And I think that is a sign of maturity, just as, again, these siblings who have to come to that realization in their own adult life um, and then adjust their own behaviors. They, they may not be able to change the behaviors of their parents, of their siblings, but their own, they can. So what that looks like in the life of the the faithful Catholic who can objectively say, no, this is a failure of leadership. This is something that should not be. And the church has very clear guidelines, actually. I mean, the real belief of the church has not changed, although the exercise of the discipline by some of her pastors has. Right. Um, that's not the church's issue. It's the pastor's issue. And it's not a failure of the church, I want to say, uh, but rather how, how the teaching of the church has been exercised. And so to have that clear statement, you know, to one of the greatest things I get to tell people when they are worried and uncertain, knowing that something's wrong is to tell them like, no, you're, you're not crazy. Now you're seeing something that should not be right. So now what do we do with it? You know, how do we not jeopardize our own state of grace, uh, but really try to thrive? And I, I, turn to that um the importance of building one another up in that community Mm -hmm. to really exercise the christian life in our spheres of influence because that's where we can do something Mm -hmm. you know on the one hand if we allow ourselves to be unduly impacted by other people's bad behavior we kind of multiply it and extend it whereas if we decide to do the good that we can in our sphere of influence then in a real way, we're fighting against it, not just fretting or wringing our hands, but actually trying to create some source of goodness and a stable place for the gospel in our own lives. And in that way, I think, to go back to the story of the prodigal son, we become servants in the household so that, God willing, somebody comes home, we can put the ring on their finger, the robe on their shoulders, the sandals on their feet. And that's you know easier said than done because there are lingering bitterness uh, yeah, there sure. and resentments that can come along with that. I think for the for the pastors of the church, you know, there is a, a protocol that a number of them have taken when it comes to especially high profile Catholics who are living and professing values uh, objectively 
objectively contrary to the teaching of the church, they'll they'll approach them privately first. Yeah, that's always the goal. You know, the gospel says that approach them. You know, just between you and that person. And I'll also add that um, I, I know at least of a few of the those who you're talking about, and they do it if that person is actually in their jurisdiction, right? right. So, like Bishop Thomas Paprocki of uh, Springfield, Illinois, um, he has been pretty outspoken about you know, Eucharistic discipline in his diocese, but he's not going to approach a politician who's not in his diocese because it's not his, that's not a soul under his pastoral care. Yeah, exactly. You can't go to your neighbor's house and, you know, <laughs> spank their kid for, right, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, that's an important clarification is that the pastor has pastoral authority over his particular jurisdiction, his right. diocese. Um, but there is, and there are pastors who are doing this. They are reaching out to those people, sending either a letter, asking them to have a conversation. And of course, you know, you don't hear about that because that's the nature of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if that still does not come through, then they escalate and then eventually becomes more public. Now the word excommunication, you know, there's a lot to that and it gets thrown around a lot. I mean, that is conceivably an eventual action that could be taken but excommunication is meant to be medicinal right that it's meant to kind of wake the person up and say you are not in a regular state you are jeopardizing your eternal salvation get your act together um with the hope that they do right they know how serious their actions are by that really serious word um and you know who knows if we'll see that it I, I don't want to really weigh in on whether I think it should be done or not, but yeah. you know, it is, it is, it does have its place. And actually in a, one of his most recent um, in-flight conferences, uh, Pope Francis uses the, that the, word. The famous in-flight conferences. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He uses that word. Which and, one? Which word? Uh, excommunication. Oh yeah. yeah. And, uh, and he doesn't sort of exclude it as something that's not possible. He kind of contextualizes it. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, that's something worth paying attention to. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's important and I don't want I don't want you to comment and I wouldn't comment either on specific cases because like you said there may be pastoral conversations already happening that uh, that I'm not privy to and you're not privy to um, but I what I would like is just for every bishop to take that role really seriously and I think that's what you're if I read your article correctly that's what you're arguing for as well that bishops and priests but especially bishops are our spiritual fathers and they need to take that role seriously. Um, and that means that they, um, they are responsible for the formation of those souls. And they're also responsible for the correction and the re- rehabilitation or the restoration of those souls when those souls are, um, are going down the wrong path. So uh, I will, we'll end, end the discussion of Eucharistic coherence there, but I will um, put Father Jim's article in the podcast notes so you can find a link to that. Uh, it was from First Things, June 1st of this year, 2021. Uh, and you can read more there. Father Jim, uh, I don't know if I've asked you this question before, but I like to ask, ask people when I have time uh, to tell me about one of, one of their favorite saints. So maybe we can end this, uh, end this podcast with a discussion of one of your favorite saints. Just tell me a little bit about him or her. Um, oh, good question. I think I've probably brought him up on one of our previous podcasts, but I, uh, although I'm not a priest of, of the prelature of Opus Dei, I've always had a real appreciation for St. Jose Maria Escriva because he, he really understood and pioneered in, a, in his own way um, kind of the, the, the baptismal vocation to holiness of the laity. And in some ways, you know, what later on Benedict XVI would call a sense of co-responsibility for the life and the health of the church. The, um, the focus of Opus Dei to really help build up and equip laymen and women 
to live that vocation to sanctify the temporal order um, in a very clearly understood and embraced way. So, you know, his his own uh, dedicated focus on that and really, I think, prescient um, or even prophetic mission uh, in that regard. So he's, uh, yeah, he's been a very, very a big favorite and also i think you know, in the community of saints he's, he's nudged me a couple times along the way more than a couple times i really consider him to kind of be a close advocate that's great i mean he's such a wonderful saint for the family as well because he he preached so much about the importance of the family he had a strong devotion to saint joseph um i had father calloway on earlier this year to talk about the consecration of saint joseph and um saint jose maria features pretty prominently in that book as just someone who's written a lot of things about saint joseph and has a strong devotion himself um, and obviously to our blessed mother, um, and so to the whole holy family. And yeah, Jose Maria is great. One of my best friends is a supernumerary of Opus Dei, and so Saint Jose Maria was one of the first, uh, one of the first saints. I mean, outside of the sort of sort of the, the the saints you encounter as a Protestant, the sort of Augustines of the world and whatnot. Saint Jose Maria is one of the first Catholic saints that I really heard a lot about because as my friend was helping me along the path to Catholicism, he would he would share with me a lot of meditations and reflections from Saint Jose Maria. So he holds a special place in in my heart as well. Well, that's great. Uh, any good movies you're watching lately? Anything anything coming out you're looking forward to seeing? I'm looking forward to Dune. I'm not a sci-fi yeah. person, but I like a lot of the actors in it. Denis Villeneuve is a great director, so that uh, and they've had a lot of time to polish it. So yeah, if, seriously, if, if it yeah. ain't ready by now, it's never going to be ready. It wasn't originally summer 2020? I believe so. Yeah, I mean, it's been a, a long time delayed. Um, yeah, that should be an exciting one. I'm not a sci-fi guy either. I haven't even read the book, so I'm right now I'm debating whether or not I should go see the movie before having read the book. Mm, sure, sure. Have you read the book? Do you have an opinion on that? No, okay. I haven't. All right. No, I need, yeah, may get an audio book. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it's, it sounds good. I, was, is that December coming out? Or is it I November? Think, no, I think later this month. October. Oh, okay. Wow, I'm not even tracking that. I thought it was November, December. All right, well, yeah, sounds good. Well, thank you so much for joining another episode. It was great to have you on for the third time. Um, and thank you for sharing with us your thoughts on Eucharistic coherence. My pleasure. Thank you, Zach. To my listeners, uh, if you have a question for Father Jim, I'd be happy to pass it along. So send me a note, Zach at creedalpodcast.com, and I will um, either pass it on or, or ask Father Jim for you if it's a question and, and get back to you. So uh, you can also send me a note on any other topic or provide any feedback, ask any other questions, Zach at creedalpodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.